Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Scarlet and Brown Stories. I am your host, Beth Dixon, and this month I am so happy to be joined with Dennis Morial. I'm so excited. Denny, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Beth. I'm super excited to be back and uh, excited to be podcasting with you. We've worked together a long time and now uh, both getting on the show. So I know. This is so exciting. You know, we've been a part of this podcast team for a little while, but before that, you know, we've been working together in this capacity for about, what, seven years at this point. And previous to that, we'd worked together reunions when I was a student worker and you were in charge of the student workers. So a nice long history. Go way back. Stories that we'll save for another episode. Yes. We'll we'll set that aside for today. Yeah, we've got a a very exciting guest today, someone that I've also been working with for a long time. Absolutely. So here's our interview with Lizzie Edwards, class of 2012. so excited to be chatting with one of our honestly like best volunteers that we have of our young alum league and she's just been super involved with St. Lawrence since she graduated. She has a wonderful career in education. She's an all-star runner. She's got all these wonderful attributes going for her and we're excited to hear a little bit more about her Scarlet and Brown story. So Denny, why don't you Tell us a little bit more about Lizzie before we bring on Lizzie Edwards. Yeah, thank you, Beth. I was reflecting on this beforehand because I've been working with Lizzie for a number of years now in the Young Alumni League program. And the way that I think about it is this. I mean, we think a lot about the strength of our world-renowned alumni network and what makes a network strong, right? And I was thinking of it, the kind of metaphor of like, what makes... Uh, steel strong? What does steel consist of, right? Steel is almost entirely just iron. And then you throw in like a little bit of carbon or manganese or something like that. And that little bit changes the whole structure and it makes it much, much stronger than the, you know, the iron's pretty strong on its own, but you throw that in and you get steel, something vastly stronger. And Lizzie really is sort of an example of the the carbon atoms in our network, right? It would be strong on its own, but throw them in and the whole kind of latticework structure just becomes so much stronger than it would be otherwise. So, you know, I'm not a chemist, uh, or <laughs> you could have fooled me <laughs> or a blacksmith for that matter right but uh so don't let's not take the metaphor too far but genuinely lizzie is one of the most important volunteers i've worked with in the 10 years i've been running the young alumni program so i'm delighted to have her on and uh welcome to the show Denny, thank you so much. What an introduction. Your enthusiasm <laughs> and leadership has made being part of the young alumni network so enjoyable and also so accessible. You've made it a competition, you've made it <laughs> <laughs> engaging, and you've and you've made it dynamic, truly. Oh well, thank well, you. I think that's a really great place to start, actually, because for our listeners who don't know what the Young Alumni League is. It's a really interesting and fascinating uh, way to get involved as a young alum. And it's something that Denny has actually been able to present on across the nation at different conferences and and had colleagues at different institutions pick his brain about. Um, So why don't the two of you kind of tell us a little bit about what the Young Alumni League is? Uh, Maybe, Lizzie, why don't you start from what it is from a volunteer's standpoint? 
Absolutely. So Denny gathers people who are 10 years or less out from their undergrad experience. And he creates basically a fantasy football draft, wherein you as a volunteer get to try to find people from your affinity groups. So maybe a sport that you did on campus, a living community that you were a part of, a sorority or fraternity that you were a part of, or any other like study abroad group, an affinity group. And within that context, you try to gather your team. And just like in sports, you want to try to have some people who have consistently given over the years and you reach out to them and see if they'd be willing to continue to give. But Denny also incentivizes getting people involved in attending alumni events or donating who maybe haven't done so yet. And for them, maybe it's a matter of hearing from someone who reminds them of how positive their college experience was. And maybe they've started to take on other ventures and it's not at the forefront of their mind, but a call or a text from someone who was a part of that experience triggers in them that loyalty where they want to get involved. He also incentivizes it not just being financial involvement, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't put monetary goals at the forefront of the experience. He wants to see people attending alumni events, mentoring people in their careers, and getting involved in other ways. And because of the way he structured it, it creates a network that feels like it's based on people giving where they feel their strengths are instead of giving where um, it maybe feels more forced for them. I think that's such a succinct way to describe it. Denny, do you have any additional thoughts here? I I would just say it was it was lovely to hear <laughs> you describe it that way from your perspective. Um I I have presented on it in a number of places, but to hear someone who's been as involved as you have talk about it like that and kind of seize on some of the real key points of it just really kind of warms my heart. Yeah, the program it started out as a way to increase involvement of our young youngest alums. Um, before I was here, it was really kind of only focused on giving. And through the things I was seeing, what I was hearing from volunteers beforehand, the, before the kind of remodel where we turned it into the, the fantasy football uh, <laughs> method, that you can't just isolate things down to just giving, right? Because everyone's a whole person. And so the more someone is engaged in any one category, the more they're in, going to just be engaged across the board. And that's what we want to do and to think about it kind of holistically. And to that extent, it has worked out well. The other way that it's worked out well, you know, the numbers sort of have been fabulous in terms of how engaged those classes have been that have been involved in the program. But it's just for me personally, so much fun to be a part of and to sort of tell the stories from week to week when we're in season and to track uh, the progress of the different classes and the different competitors. And I never could have guessed before I started how fiercely competitive it would get. (laughs) I mean, genuinely, the last however many years, if you're ranked anywhere in the top 40, I know because I'm hearing from you all the time that you are you're really working hard here. You're really actively engaged in it and reaching out to people and making a difference. And kind of a key thing is that one person is crowned Young Alumni League champion at the end of each year. And that person, I can tell you, really earns it. I mean, it's an, mm-hmm. it is so competitive that I am always sort of blown away and, and deeply humbled by the efforts made by that person. And we have a f- former champion in our presence on the conversation here today. And in addition to that, someone who has been, you know, she, so she was a league champion, but in many other years, she has 
been a top five finisher and makes the champion sweat and makes them work harder than they would if they hadn't, if Lizzie hadn't been there. I can say that for sure. Um, Lizzie, do you take it very competitively as well? Like, do you feel the competitive spirit when you're participating in the Young Alum League? Absolutely. Um, Lindsay Malcolm and I were teammates at St. Lawrence, but we battled <laughs> oh, wow. it out a couple of years. Yeah. Um, no, I hear, I hear from Lindsay's a good friend of mine. Like she'll call me or text me like in the closing weeks. And is like, I'm just, I'm not feeling confident about my score. She'll be in first or something. And she's like, Lizzie's <laughs> just been, she's gained like 120 points last week. I'm really not comfortable with this. Uh, so <laughs> you're, you're bringing out the best in people. <laughs> Well, I think you also hit the nail on the head with bringing out what makes St. Lawrence alums St. Lawrence alums. We're all competitive fiercely, but in this Mm -hmm. friendly kind of way. Mm -hmm. Um, That's part of the culture on campus. And it's something that we can carry through to those years right after graduation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I like to that to both of your points before that this is really just about engagement at the end of the day. Right. And what I love is the amount of people that I when I used to participate in the league that would be like, Beth, I want to help get you some points. What can I do? And I'd be like, write a class note. And they're like, I'm on it. And then all of a sudden, the class of 2010 had like a whole bunch of notes and that kind of thing, which is really fun. And it's just a great way to connect with people who maybe you're not talking to all the time, but you still think about from time to time. It's a great little touch point. Lizzie, it's important to note that this year is your 10th reunion, essentially. As you reflect back on 10 years of being a young alum, what have you learned about either the St. Lawrence Network or yourself or a combination thereof that you would love to give that advice to a graduating senior this year? Put yourself out there. There have been so many situations where I've been in a major city in a different part of the U.S., not anywhere near Canton. And I've seen someone with a St. Lawrence t-shirt and don't be afraid to go up and talk to them. Ask them about their experience. See what kind of cool opportunity, whether it's social or professional, could come out of that. And also just be open to new experiences. I think that the world we live in right now is different from the world people were graduating into a generation ago. I haven't been afraid to move geographic locations, but I felt ties to my past throughout. So I got to a new job at the beginning of the pandemic last year in Telluride, Colorado, and someone showed up at my school, a substitute teacher to cover a maternity leave. And it turned out it was Colin Sullivan, St. Lawrence class of 2002, who is the executive director of the Telluride Theater here where I live. But he's really deeply ingrained in my school community. His kid goes to Montessori school in the same building. And he had a number of the same professors as me. Like some of my absolute favorite professors were his favorite professors too. (laughs) So we engaged in this dialogue. And even though we graduated 10 years apart, we had both done the London semester abroad. And we even had like British professors in common. And (laughs) it was just insane. So I feel really grateful that I've had those kind of crazy St. Lawrence moments at different points in these 10 years since graduating. That's super interesting. So as you sort of put yourself in the shoes of you as a graduating senior, when you look at everything that sort of happened in between, has it all been exactly according to plan or, or where have there been the kind of interesting twists? Absolutely not. Um, (laughs) Life has had many twists and turns that 2012 me would never have predicted. 
But the journey has led me to somewhere where I feel really happy. I love what I do career-wise. I love the community I've landed in. It's so vibrant, athletically, artistically, intellectually. I'm never bored. There are always stimulating events going on. And with modern technology, I'm still connected to my friends back in upstate New York or my friends who live in other places I've I've gone to along the way. I never would have predicted using my minor in European studies from St. Lawrence, but now I'm teaching history. And I was an English Very major cool. and I, I thought I would just teach English, but now my course load is half English, half history. And I'm calling upon some of those experiences that I had earning credits abroad for that, for that minor and actually using them in my teaching, um, showing kids pictures of my travels and trying to get them engaged in that way. So I think overall, it's important to have a vision for what your goals are in life, but to balance that with the practice of a little bit of healthy spontaneity and following your gut. I never thought about living in Colorado before, but someone reached out to me with an opportunity at the beginning of the pandemic. And I, I decided to go for it. And I interviewed all over Zoom, having never been here before. <laughs> and I secured housing, having never been here before. And I've been really happy. So I think it's important to to be brave and to, to make changes when you, you feel it in your heart that it's going to be good for you. I think that's really important to, to hear. So often we are told you know, from the time that we're little, right? What are you going to do when you grow up? And it's like, I graduated college and I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, you know, and I was grown up at that point. I had to know. And so taking those risks are super important. And I think that oftentimes when we have people like yourself who are in education, we think of education as a very like stable career, right? Like you, you do something and there's probably not that much risk in it, but there is, there's a lot of ways that you can make it exciting and different and for yourself. And we have a lot of Laurentians who go out into the, the education world, whether they're teaching abroad, they're teaching English in different countries, or if they enter like a traditional K through 12 system, whether it's public or private, uh, we have people who are mentors and coaches, we have people in higher education, education in itself, like you said, has so many opportunities to keep your mind and your body really active in so many ways. I know that you were an athlete. Have you been able to translate any of your experiences of running at St. Lawrence into your teachings in any way? Have you been a coach? Have you done anything like that that we could explore a little bit today? Yeah. So I was a cross-country and track coach for seven years prior to moving here, Fantastic, which is incredible. And I loved it so much. I have now transitioned to actually being a mountain biking and skiing coach. No way. Wow. That's, <laughs> That's the most Colorado thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so I've, I, yeah, I've taken all these classes. I'm going to get avalanche safety level one certified in two weekends. I'm taking a group cool. of kids to do it. And in chaperoning that trip, I'm getting certified as well. I just got back from a backcountry hut ski trip with kids. We had 20 middle schoolers. So my job right now is actually very varied. It's 7th to 12th grade humanities. So I I teach a lot of different age groups. But I took seven eighth graders into the backcountry and we learned avalanche safety education. And last spring I did a rafting trip down the Green River in Utah. And we looked at the history of that region sociologically as well as environmentally. And then I've also taken kids backpacking, um, two backpacking trips to Bears Ears National Monument, where we delivered place-based history, English, and art curriculums. So I've had to be in 
good shape for all of these trips. Um, (laughs) And I I credit my St. Lawrence cross country and track time with helping me to create a regimen so it's possible to do that. I think it's sort of fascinating. To best point, this is not what you think of when you think of the track of being a teacher. You know, you do think Mm -hmm. of it as this more kind of static existence. And yeah, the amount of travel alone that you do is kind kind of amazing and the exciting forms that it takes. So you have a trip coming up in March, which will be right around the time that this is landing. Do you want to tell us more about that one? Absolutely. So the South trip is a biennial civil rights experiential education trip. Mm -hmm. And we fly from Colorado, where I'm based, to Atlanta. And we tour around the southern United States. It usually runs for 7th and 8th graders in January. Mm -hmm. But we have had to reschedule twice due to COVID-related concerns. We now have the green light to go ahead right now this March with the current 8th and 9th graders. Mm-hmm. So we've we've lost a whole school year in the planning yeah. of this and yeah. rebooked museums, we've rebooked flights, hotels, but everyone's pivoting right now. It's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And the focus of this trip is to explore social justice and civil rights in America from the beginning of our country's history to the current day. So we will be traveling with a cohort of about 20 middle schoolers and early high schoolers and four faculty members. And we'll visit museums, memorials, and monuments in Atlanta, Montgomery, Selma, and Birmingham. So we'll be delivering curriculum while we're traveling. Then we'll come back to school and we'll we'll create what we call a POL, or presentation of learning. And mm-hmm. the students will be able to share their newly acquired knowledge with the entire school community. This is a model we repeat three or four times a year for our kids. That's amazing. Depending on, yeah, depending. Experiential education is just so important. I think that, you know, when we think of school, or at least when I think of it, I often think about, you know, textbooks and homework and sitting there in class. And I mean, that was very much the core of my education um, growing up. And then I got to go to college and it was a little different. You know, you did a lot of the reading at home and then, you know, classes were just discussion-based or presentations or you went off and learned something and then you brought it back for everybody else to learn about it too. And I I love everything that you've said today so far, whether it's these trips that you're taking, you're helping to inform people on diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, not even theories, just practices. You're, You're teaching in such a liberal arts kind of way. The fact that you have both you know, like humanities in general is a very liberal arts concept. You know, you have English and history that you're teaching together, which is important. And then combining that with this experience of whether it be coaching or these outdoor trips and and that kind of thing, there's so much that you can learn that are life skills or personal skills from all of those different kinds of things. And so I love that your approach in the career that you've chosen has been really focused on helping students be better global citizens in addition to being better versions of themselves too, like learning what some of their strengths and weaknesses are, maybe learning, oh, I actually really like hiking and I've never gone before, or this was a big risk for me to go rafting. I've never done that. Um, I don't know if I'll do it again, but I can say that I've done it. And I don't know if when I reflect back, if I had too many of those experiences in K through 12 that I could say. So hearing that there are students out there that are going to be able to have those experiences in their formative years, it's really important to hear. Thank you. I I really feel that I've grown in my teaching practice 
And I also don't know that I necessarily had these types of experiences at a young age. I did have them in college. I remember Mm -hmm. doing a class with an Italian singer where we were visiting local farmers and it was environmental studies and also English. And so I I, I had those kind of experiences at St. Lawrence and certainly abroad, we would go to a museum and discover things in a hands-on way. I really think that students remember things when they directly have experiences instead Mm -hmm. of indirectly acquiring the information through a textbook or seventh graders can't listen to a three-hour lecture. They're not going to remember anything, right? Right. So Mm -hmm. I feel really supported in my community that I can be creative with my lesson plans. And not only am I allowed to do that, I'm encouraged to do that. And it's not just when we're traveling. When we're at school, we can do this too. One of my favorite memories so far of teaching here is I had my ninth grade history students make a map of World War One battles using hmm. humans to represent geographic locations. <laughs> <laughs> and then they tied themselves together with yarn to show the encounters or the battles between the locations. Oh, that's so cool. And because I work at a multi-age school, the younger kids came out for their break and like second and third graders were just watching with big eyes and they look up to the older kids, but they also like to see the older kids having fun. And I had some younger kids come up and say, Oh, when I'm, when I'm older and I'm in your class, will we get to do this? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that's exciting to me when you're, you're doing something and kids aren't just saying, Oh, when am I done? Or why do I have to do this? But they're excited about it. When they're saying, when do I get to do this? (laughs) Yeah, really. That's a real test of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember when I was in fifth grade, we were learning about the Revolutionary War and my teacher taxed us. So we had a paper tax. So you had to pay a penny every single time you had to turn in like your homework. Or if you had to borrow Mm -hmm. a piece of paper, you had to pay a penny for every sweet that you had in your lunch. You had a sugar tax. And so there was like a five sent kind of thing. And she gave us all the money. It's not like we had to bring money from home to do this. I remember just that practical experience and we had fun with it. One day, my dad wrote an email to my teacher and said, uh, my queen, I regret to inform you that you have a traitor amongst your, mi- uh, like this whole thing. <laughs> and he had packed a whole bunch of sweets in my lunch pail and I hadn't known it. And of course he had all the, the nickels and everything in there, but like they made it like this huge theatrical deal. And it was like, you know, they put me on trial trial in the, in the class. It was so silly. But that kind of thing, really, from here on out, I'm like, I could tell you all the different kinds of taxes before the, the Revolutionary <laughs> War. Because in fifth grade, I got taxed. And like that experiential education took me out of the textbook and like made me have a lived experience. So the things that you're doing and your students have the creativity to do, I'm sure are making a huge difference in how they will retain information moving forward. <laughs> so you had mentioned that uh, teaching history is new for you because you were an English major. And so you've just been teaching history for the last two years. Is that right? That's right. Had you taken history in college or is this, was this sort of a newly acquired skill set? A little bit through that European studies minor. I had some education in history, but Mm -hmm. a lot of it has been, I love to read. Obviously I pursued an English major at St. Lawrence because I love (laughs) to read. So a lot of self-taught work in the last Mm -hmm. two years as well, which has been good for me. I'm never bored. I'm always learning too. And information that's new to me is exciting to me. And hopefully my students can see that I'm discovering along with them. And I assume you didn't take avalanche safety in, in at St. Lawrence either. <laughs> 
right? Never so, on the East Coast, never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the th- you know the things I'm just really admiring hearing you talk about your experience here is the number of places it's been like you didn't leave with some certificate saying you knew how to do this stuff. And it's so easy, I think, when you do come from a liberal arts background to sort of sell yourself short in terms of what you can do. Just thinking again about the 2012 version of yourself that looking ahead, there are so many things that you can do because that's what the liberal arts sort of does is it primes you to be able to pick these things up as you go. Yeah, it fosters intellectual curiosity, I think, which is a hugely undervalued skill. Mm-hmm. Um, that desire to be a lifelong learner, as opposed to having a fixed mindset, I'm an expert in this, and this is what I do. Mm-hmm. It, it's more of a lifestyle I'm trying to adopt where I'm constantly learning new things. So I'm never bored. My brain's always stimulated. Athletically, I'm always stimulated. And it just mm-hmm. makes life more exciting. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. As you look forward to other goals in your career, what what are some of those goals that you have? I think for me, I'm I'm still growing in my practice. So every day I'm learning something new. How do I make kids feel safe to express themselves in the classroom? How do I remind them that a lot of the time in English, there's no wrong answer? Can you back up your perspective with evidence or feelings? Can you articulate yourself? So I'm still, I'm always learning new ways to go about achieving a lesson that feels good. Mm -hmm. And in any given day, within a lesson, you might feel like you had stronger or weaker points. Within a day, you might feel like certain classes went better or worse than you thought they would. So I think at the end of the day, I want to feel like I'm always growing as a teacher and I aspire to also be a writer. Mm. Yeah. As well. That's great. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of a passion project that that I want to pursue on the side. What kind of writing would you be interested in pursuing or are you pursuing? Uh short stories and poetry mostly. I don't Very cool. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. yeah. I can't wait to see your published work someday. We'll we'll (laughs) come back to this podcast and say, hey, in February 2022, she was talking about this being a passion of hers. And let's look it up. So circling back a little bit, some of the things we were talking about earlier on in terms of staying engaged and volunteering and those kinds of things. Beth and I were kind of having a debate as we were prepping for this (laughs) podcast a little bit because I was saying I've been again I've been working with the young alumni classes for I think this is my 10th year working with young alumni and I was saying 2012 is there's something really special about that class and then Beth is like well I mean 2010 through 2012 um, I was saying 20 <laughs> I, I started off by saying 2012 learned from 2010 yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> I said that's kind of tongue in cheek, to be honest with you. But then we started talking about those three classes. There really is something to it. I mean, that's what if you had asked me candidly without trying to, you know, flatter anyone on this very podcast, I would have said independently that there is something definitely unique about the triplet of classes of 2010 through 2012. Of course, all of our classes are exceptional in their own ways, right? But from all the ways that from our office's standpoint of engagement, event attendance, um, annual fund support, volunteering for admissions, career services, that triplet of classes really is is exceptional. I was curious to get your theory about this. Was there something in the water at the time? Was there, because there's a lot of reason to think that people graduating at that particular time period might 
not be so connected to their school, just in terms of the world they were walking out into. But that's our one of the strongest three class pairs that we have anywhere in our, our lineup. I'm not sure that I can answer this question with certainty, but I can speculate based on anecdotal experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think that we were pretty harmonious as a cohort while at SLU. Mm-hmm. And I think that SLU provided ample opportunities for us to connect with people outside of our classes. So mm-hmm. those intentional living communities, study abroad, extracurricular activities and events, the FYP idea of living with people you're taking a first year class with. I think all of those things contributed to me feeling like I had a lot of different affinity groups Mm -hmm. And we all supported each other. And you could be a thespian and an athlete. And you could be someone studying two seemingly disparate academic areas and having friendships in both those areas. It wasn't uncommon for me to feel like there were multiple opportunities for what I could do with my free time in terms of connections I had with people in different facets of my campus life. Mm -hmm. And I never felt tied to one identity or friend group while I was at St. Lawrence. So I think that engendered a sense of loyalty to a a vaster network of people. And I also think that, yes, we went through a lot of global events that were challenging. We also came of age as technology was coming of age, right? Mm -hmm. So we knew what it was like to not be always connected to each other and to have to make the effort to have those face-to-face conversations But we also had the ease of communication once we got on campus. A lot of us had those older cell phones. So we had some level. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You press three times for the C. And then you would press it another three. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we were like right on the precipice of all of that. And social media, Facebook was just becoming big. So we had this interconnectivity, but I think we were also forced to be social with each mm-hmm. other in a way that maybe is is less rampant now with more technology. We were we were right in that bubble. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. You guys really were sort of in a an interesting spot as far as that goes. I think of myself as sort of being I've graduated in 2007 as being sort of millennial, but I really am kind of like really straddling the Gen X millennial line there. But you guys are like squarely millennial and in that space of having, yeah, had that those kind of dual existences and, and seen both sides of things. That's not just, I mean, there's some very strong classes coming up, but there was something really kind of uniquely special about those three, I feel like. A few interesting things I can say that I've observed having worked with those classes for my whole career at this point. I think of each class as sort of like an organism, you know, it sort of has its own personality a little bit. Um, Beth, 2010 is like the most cutthroat class I've worked We're with. We're very cutthroat. <laughs> more like the most competitive. This is maybe I see this more because of the running the Young Alumni League. But I mean, 2010 is the most overtly competitive class across the board that I work mm-hmm. with. And it's really like not even close. And by contrast, 2012, if I could say one thing about 2012, it's that you guys just love each other. Like it is, it is wild. You can name drop anyone in the class to anyone else in the class and you, and you'll just hear, Oh, I love him. Well, you know, it'll be like, <laughs> I, it's, it's remarkable. Like I love a lot of people from my class too. I felt like I knew like everybody as I was graduating. And now I look at the spreadsheet of all the people in my class 2007 and it's like, wow. 
I actually, there's a lot of people in here I don't know, but I feel like it's uncanny whenever I'm meeting with people from 2012, how they just know everyone and they just love everyone. It is, I've never seen anything like it. That's so accurate. I really feel <laughs> connected to all of them. <laughs> yeah. And even people who are really different personality wise, they somehow just gel. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. It doesn't matter. Like you could have been like a star in the hockey team or you could be like a, in Java and you were like, oh, that guy's great. It uh, It's just across the board. Shout out to all my 2012 people. I miss you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll all be together for reunion some year. Before we end our chat with you today, Lizzie, I wanted to just see, you know, you've been involved with St. Lawrence for a while. We've asked a few of our guests this question, but if you had a million dollars to give to St. Lawrence, where would you invest in St. Lawrence? Ooh, that's challenging. I feel a connection to to so many aspects of my experience there, but I'd have to say what was formative for me would be study abroad and the cross-country and track program. I think through both those experiences, I learned it it was okay to fail and bounce back. And I had a community supporting me. Mm -hmm. And those communities still support me today. If I I do a race now, almost 10 years out, I know that I'm going to get positive feedback from teammates and former coaches. Like, that's just incredible. That doesn't happen with every school. It's, it's so true. I was in the Laurentian Singers, and it's the same thing. If I sing someplace, uh, then you know other people, oh, I love that music, or great job. I, I know that you did well. I didn't listen, but I'm sure that it was great. You know, like, I mean, you get that kind of support, and I agree. I was, I was in D.C. with kids a couple of years ago, and I met up with two people from my Global Francophones program group. Oh, wow. That's oh, that's so great. fun. Who are living in D.C. now. And, and yeah. I hit them up last minute. I was like, I'm coming to town tomorrow with a bunch of teenagers. I'm going to have an hour <laughs> off. Want to get together? And they were like, yes, they were there. I love Ethan, when you can make those kind of connections. Yeah. Ethan Bishop and Emma Rents. Oh, yeah. Oh, both mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Well, Lizzie, thank you so much for the time that you have given us today. And thank you for the time that you do to invest in your students, both in and out of the classroom. We are so excited to have you for one last year. In the Young Alum League, and we're hoping, we're pulling for you to bring home that gold <laughs> once again to really mm-hmm. solidify yourself as like the go-to champion of the Young Alum League. I'll be in the running for sure. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have no doubts. <laughs> we have no doubts. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Wonderful. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks. Lizzie Edwards, uh, class of 2012. She is one of the best, best of the best. And uh, I have a feeling we may not be hearing the last from her on this show if if I have anything to say about it. So, (laughs) you know, stay tuned. Absolutely. You know what I love? Um, And I know we... You might have been able to hear a little bit of like the school sounds and such in the background, but this mm-hmm. is like how committed she is both as a teacher and as uh, a Laurentian that she wanted to jump right in with this kind of school environment and and like bring us in to that environment while she was talking about it. I really oh, like yeah. that actually. Yeah, no, it's great to really feel present, even even though we literally aren't, but to feel really present yeah. with a guest like her. It was such a wonderful conversation. I hope that you all enjoyed it and be sure to tune in for our next edition. So have a good day and we'll see you next month. 
Scarlet and Brown Stories is edited and produced by Amanda Brewer, Megan Fry Dozier, Dennis Moriel, Beth Dixon, and Amelia Jancy. Our music was written by Christopher Watts, inspired by Eugene Wright, class of 49. Subscribe to Scarlet and Brown Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a story you'd like to submit to us, you can email us at connect at stlawu.edu.